0: So an interesting thing I heard this morning. Yep. I think it was Pod Save America guys. We're talking about like so-called polling in South Carolina. So so-called my next polling. question is polling. why is it only so-called yeah, polling? That's interesting. Is it not real polling? Iowa has Anseltzer and New Hampshire has, you know, Suffolk and Monmouth and everybody else that wants mm. to to research that. Does South Carolina just not have like a resident pollster because it didn't used to go so early?
1: Could be right. Yeah.
0: I don't know. Interesting. <laughs> oh, the machinations of yeah. all this stuff. Welcome to Crosstabs, a podcast for people trying to cope with yet another most important election year in our lifetimes. I'm your host, Farah Bostic, and I promise that on this podcast, you will hear no hot takes, no partisan spin, and most importantly, no predictions. We're not trying to unskew the polls. We're just trying to demystify them. Joining me most weeks will be my friend and colleague, Paul Soldera, the quantitative research match for my qualitative sensibilities. And we'll try to explain why polls are designed the way they are to better help us all understand what a poll really says and what it really doesn't. Let's get started. So yeah, so uh, the exciting news is while we have, I think, possibly gotten all the way to like Fifteen downloads of the first episode we do have engaged listeners
1: (laughs) thank you so much for everyone who downloaded this this episode of quite the the most arcane niche topic you could probably get as a podcast
0: (laughs) it's true although i i will say i've got um some very nice feedback that um Mm. that it's a good idea that it's a thing where like we've been awash in this public discourse about Polls and whether you can trust them and whether right. they're high quality or poor quality or whatever, where people yeah. are like, "So, how do I figure out when I should pay attention to a poll and when I shouldn't?" Especially yeah. in this our year of polls,
1: it comes up even in professional life, right? As a quantitative researcher, in the sense that well, mm-hmm. people are always suspicious of research, full stop, because they always like, "Well, where are you getting your data from?" You know, yes. so you get that a lot, and people lie. You know, people don't tell the truth oh, yes. and other kinds of things. So. When you're in the industry, you have a completely different view of those questions. But if you don't have that industry view, I can completely see how people are just confused as to what to believe and what not to believe, and and when they're looking at different polls, you know, not knowing that in a random online poll on some news website, you know, you shouldn't pay attention to it versus something done from a a proper pollster and knowing the ins and outs of just how it's all done accurately. You know, just people really just don't know that. So it is a valid question, I think. So it's great.
0: Yeah, I think you can come at it from two types of prior beliefs, right? Mm. And one is one that I think we experienced quite a bit in the marketing universe of motivated skepticism, let's say, <laughs> about right. research. Adam and I were recording this morning for In the Demo, and we were talking about this piece that Richard Huntington wrote on work about marketing land not being connected to reality and part Mm -hmm. of his argument was they're not doing enough research without getting into it the data he presented from work about how much research marketers are doing is they're doing plenty but but one of the things that's fascinating about it is this like just deep skepticism that people who work in ad agencies have for market research right And then, you know, marketers also being concerned about like, well, did you really get a good sample? And did you ask enough people? And did you ask the question the right way? And did you use some weird analytic approach or whatever? That's one prior belief. I think the other prior belief for sort of the lay person thinking about political polls is why would there be bad polling? Like, why would you have
1: bad polling? Why would you have bad polling? Yeah. What would go wrong with bad polling? Yeah. And just going back one step to the ad agency Skepticism about research. There's a belief that you can't ask customers what they want. Mm -hmm. You know, as well as tied to that, and that they don't know. There is a sense that some questions you just won't get responses that are worthwhile when you ask them. I think that's very true in the marketing world. Depending on what questions you ask, I think it's true in the polling world as well. And I've been looking at a lot of the stuff that you sent through recently. And we'll probably get to this, but there's a lot of very general, vague questions that get asked, that, that people are asked to give their opinion on, that you can get the results and you can interpret them pretty much any way you want, given the vagueness of what was asked in the first place.
0: This was sort of the specific question from uh, my friend, Laura Miranda Brown, who was like, she occasionally gets YouGov polls or mm-hmm. text-based polls or that sort of thing. And sometimes she just looks at these questions and is like... I'm not even sure what this question means, much mm. less why you're asking it, much less why you're asking it like that.
1: Completely. Um, yeah. And then
0: she had a she had a great example from an earlier survey for a movie called Poseidon. And one of the questions that the phone interviewer had for her on the survey was, What comes to mind when you hear the word Poseidon? And she said, Trident. Right. Yeah. And the interviewer Conducting the survey said, That's not one of the options on my form. <laughs> you know, so she was right. like, How do they formulate the question? How do they decide what choices to offer you? <laughs> like, when especially when it's like a battery of statements or something yeah. like that, like, it, where it, do these, these even come from? Which it, is a great question.
1: It is. Yeah. And why would you ask an open ended question with a coded list behind the scenes that you can't actually select one? Exactly. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense yeah there's there's lots of that stuff that goes on i've just seen hundreds of examples of surveys that go out there into the real world that I just should never have gotten off the design floor because they were just awful <laughs> and i think that's rampant and i just think no one really knows how to teach you how to write a good survey to a- ask a good questions you just get that from doing experience and look- looking at lots of different results so i think People coming into this, thinking, "Oh, we'll just ask a few questions," can completely get it wrong because they just don't have a source of knowledge. What kind of data those questions generate, you know, and it's sad that you can't really get that from anywhere. There's not, you, know, you just can't. No one starts a podcast about tabs I did. Yeah,
0: right, yeah. <laughs> we're here. We're here. Yeah, that's you, it. You agreed to do yes, it. I Paul. know. right. Yeah, <laughs> having
1: regrets as well.
0: In the last couple of election cycles. I listened to um 538 Politics podcast. Yeah. And I think what I wanted them to do was explain the polls. And mm. the thing that they actually ended up doing was, you know, punditry with yeah. a bit more data than normal pundits, I guess. And occasionally they would do this little segment that they called good use of polling, bad use of polling. And mm. I think what they actually meant about that was two things. One is, is that really a question you should put into polling? Mm-hmm. The other, I think, was, When the media reports on it, are they leveraging the data correctly? Like, are are they using the data the way they should or are they doing something else? And I think this also gets into the question of question formation because you do have some polling firms that are engaged in. And we could probably do a whole episode about push polling, but they're like they're actually trying to use the poll to influence the voter, not learn from the voter.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: You have polling that asks questions that seem funny. Like I remember back in, I want to say 2016, public policy polling was doing a lot of seemingly wacky polls that the press liked to report on because they indicated that Trump voters believed really weird things. What I found interesting about those polls was I I took them as kind of a measure of message breakthrough on weird conspiracy theories. Right. And I think, I think. That would be a better way of understanding what yeah. those polls were trying to do.
1: Completely agree. Yeah.
0: But anyway, like I think there is this sort of question about like different pollsters ask questions for different reasons, and also come at come to the survey design with different knowledge, beliefs, yeah. assumptions about I, what they should ask about. Yeah,
1: and I think that there just seems to be a lot of, if I call it laziness, I don't know why they ask these kinds of statements the way they do because I think when you try and report on them, you can just interpret them in many different ways. And I don't know, maybe pulses do that because they want it to be vague. So they want anyone to be able to take their poll and interpret it in a way that makes sense for whatever political leaning, you know, journalist picks it up. But I was looking at one you sent through that was like the question was, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way democracy is working in this country? I think that's a classic really vague statement to ask someone because first of all obviously lots of americans have tons of experience with democracy in other countries if not you know so there's no there's no sense that they can really compare it the other question is how are they interpreting democracy i mean that's like a that's a a term we know what it means but the different building blocks of a democracy in something like this, the, the us and the way it works it's it's massive amount of stuff that goes into that I so it, it, how do you interpret it i mean it, you can interpret it as the person i want to win didn't win that's democracy working well but you could have no faith in democracy if you think that the person you wanted to win didn't win there was you know as we saw in the last election, there, there was a lot of talk about you know the election being stolen, the, the big lie that the Republicans keep, right. keep pushing. So that's going to affect that. I mean, it, it could be that a polling place was closed down in your local town and now you have to drive, you know, at 45 minutes to, to vote. And you could think democracy is not working because it's harder for you to vote than it was in the last election. Now, that could be democracy you know, not working as well. There's tons of different things that could layer up into democracy not working or how satisfied or dissatisfied you are with it. The way you approach that question isn't to ask it in a general sense. It's to to break down democracy into the components that you want to understand. Like ask those components and then layer those components back up into a metric that you then measure over time. That way, Mm -hmm. when... The underlying components that you're measuring that are very specific, like accessing to voting, the belief that an election is fair, you know, those kind of things. If you ask those components of democracy and then layer that up into a metric on satisfaction with democracy, you have a much better understanding of how it's changed over time. So you see into a Gallup, you know, there's a chart that they have there's a time series chart of this insane graph that's got like the answers to the to this question since 1984. And you're, you're no closer to really understanding what's going on looking at that because the same question has been asked in the same vague way for the last 30 odd years. So if you decided to break that down into its components, you would have a far more interesting to- story to tell because you could track things like access to voting and things like satisfaction with institutions that, that run the voting system and whether or not much of that increase or decline is just changed by media that is talking about voting not being fair, you know, all those things factor into it. Anyone can take those results and interpret them in any way because you don't have any underlying knowledge of what that vague statement really means.
0: This is an interesting one, too, for an organization like Gallup. So we have these larger... Polling companies that do some public polling, some private polling, some political Mm. stuff, lots of other commercial stuff. Gallup is one of those. Gallup is more or less the oldest polling institution in in the U.S. I will probably (laughs) recommend a book called The Super Pollsters, Mm. which I actually read a couple of years ago. It's basically a history of political polling in the U.S. And so
1: um,
0: he's sort of the one to introduce probability-based sampling into political polling in the U.S., There's an interesting history about that type of polling, which is that early presidential polling was often done by newspapers and magazines, and they would basically have a ballot in the newspaper or the magazine, and you would fill it out and then send it in, and then they would report the results. And it was a way to sell newspapers and magazines. It was a way to get some attention from other media outlets, and it was just sort of a fun thing. They weren't particularly... Accurate, necessarily, although some papers did better than others at, at doing their polling. That's how more or less Gallup got his start with political polling as well. Though he did interesting things like early phone-based polling, which mm-hmm. had an interesting skew because only wealthy people had phones. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, he also did some stuff based on like DMV records. So mm. only people who had cars got pulled. Right. <laughs> so, so you had some interesting things, which is part of why you still have a reputation, I think, for the Gallup political polling. Mm. There are people who are old enough to believe that um, that Gallup has a Republican skew because mm. kind of historically it did because you had to be affluent enough right. to be to the in cycle. the list. Right. Yeah, and, but there are other things about that, which means they have years and years and years of data that they can produce and make mm. content out of, I guess. And part of what I think is interesting about this question is they've only asked it what, nine times um, in the history of Gallup polling.
1: Yeah,
0: And right. I'm fascinated about like, well, why would you ask it and then not ask it? Why would you bring it mm. back and ask it again? And and I don't necessarily know the answer to that. Just looking at the years where they asked the question on this chart, it looks like they ask it in 84, which is interesting. Mm. They ask it 91 in 92 in 93, or they ask it twice in 92. Mm. Interesting. They ask it again in 94, 95, 98, and they don't ask it again until 2021. There are some surprising things in here, which is like in 98... You know, Republicans are feeling pretty satisfied, you know, more satisfied anyway than Democrats, but they have this steep drop off in the 13 years since they last asked the question. Mm. And so the other thing about this is, meanwhile, yes, it's trending downward since 94 for both Democrats and independents, but like not as much. Yeah. And, you know, that's interesting because in, I just want to check my math on this, but like, if it's totally about you know who wins well, in two thousand and two thousand four, George W. Bush won, and then in twenty sixteen uh Donald Trump won mm. and so what's the matter <laughs> like part, part of me is like it, it can't it, it clearly cannot yeah. solely be about election winning because they've won as many elections in fact they've they've won more elections well no they' they won the same number of elections as Democrats have won, Democrats and independents are. A, Flat-ish on their satisfaction yeah. level, um, and it's kind of fifty-fifty for them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But Republicans are much more much more dissatisfied. It, and so again, without yeah. knowing why, without asking what about democracy are you satisfied or dissatisfied with, what do you even think democracy is? It's pretty hard to draw any conclusions to, about this. It,
1: it's it's hard to draw all. any conclusion even. You can draw a line between 1998 and 2001, but that line doesn't even mean anything in the context of this graph that they have because yeah, there's no information in between. I mean, the number for Republicans could have actually been up in the 60 range for most of that time, and it could have just dropped yeah. after Trump lost the last election. And the, mm-hmm. the narrative was around that election was stolen. And then Republicans' belief in democracy plummets because they believe that lie. So...
0: Yeah, this it, this line could be any shape. It could, it could be, be any like shape. a straight it could line be, across, yeah. and then it like, drops.
1: Exactly. This is it why could... you can't do time. You don't do time series. Time series information you have to collect at in an equal interval to really understand yes. it. If you have huge gaps in time series information, it's it, it's you know you're better off putting some kind of other graphic between nineteen and twenty one than than three lines. Yeah. You know, like a gap would be useful because you right. have no information you don't know that line that, that those lines don't predict the information between the years that you don't have it um yeah. in any way shape or form so that's, it's a kind of a very misleading graphic as well
0: yeah and if you just looked at the more frequent period where they're asking it in the 90s like you know i might be able to speculate about to your point like is it about winning because well yeah you know republicans are feeling pretty good but then george B- herbert walker bush loses And so then they're not that happy and they don't like Bill Clinton very much. But then like Bill Clinton gets in trouble (laughs) in 1998. It's it's, it's looking like, oh, you know, we had we had the Republican Revolution in Congress. It looks like we're going to we we might win the next presidential. We're feeling more optimistic. Or maybe they just feel like he was held to account because he went through an impeachment process. And Mm. so that feels like democracy is working to them. Mm. Democrats aren't feeling so great about it until, you know, he wins. Yeah, but right. weirdly, like they're at their peak of optimism, basically the year that like the Republicans take over Congress. So it's very hard for me to look at this and go, I don't know, like
1: uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, because but, there's uh, there's just lots of components of it. The political component of it needs to be separated out from the components of democracy uh-huh. that measure can you exercise your right to vote. You know how much you think that that is informed by good information. I mean, there's all sorts of components of democracy you could break down and make sense of this. More, But I think it, it also tells you that you know, if you look at the period of time where we actually have some data with 91, 94, 98, I mean, these lines are jumping around all over the place. So mm-hmm. I would imagine if you were doing this every year from 98, 98 through, you would have a similar up and down satisfaction with democracy based on whatever's happening in the political climate.
0: I think, though, just to go back a, a little bit of a step is, is this question of, well, what does democracy mean? um because you know i know that in the wake of the 2016 election um some political scientists including asha monk were making the the rounds talking about how younger voters were less enthusiastic about democracy in general and would be fine with a military takeover of, okay. <laughs> of the government and things like that but there are also interesting polls where you ask people things like do you want a socialist form of government and they'll say no But then if you look at other polls that ask them about specific policy choices, the things that people like more or less add up to democratic socialism. And so, like, is this just a problem of when you say... Democracy, and I say democracy, we are picturing different yeah. parts of the process. Very much, so, and yeah. and then I think we have the problem in the U.S. of so we've had a kind of long-standing, slightly pedantic debate about is it a democracy or is it a you know a republic? <laughs> is there a meaningful distinction between the two right. things? How do we understand what that is? But I think there's also the trappings of democracy. What is it that looks like democracy to you? Is it just mm-hmm. having elections? Or is it all of these sort of democratic institutions with checks and balances? Mm. Is it representation of Mm. different types of people and voices? What do we mean when we say that? And I think it sometimes strikes people as, oh, why would we even need to define that term? We all know what democracy is, but maybe we don't.
1: Yeah, I just just think different people have different interpretations of it, very different interpretations of it. What's relevant to them is going to be just very, could be very personal in terms of how they engage with democracy, you know, because I think people engage with it in very different ways, all the way from people who start podcasts on political polling, you know, down to someone who <laughs> votes once every 20 years. It's Democracy is going to have different definitions of those groups.
0: If we ask a question that is arguably vague, I think we're arguing that that question, are you satisfied or dissatisfied with the way democracy is working in this country? Mm. That there's a lot of Stuff happening underneath the surface of that question for the person responding to it. Mm. But then there are interesting ways that they present the data as well, which is, you know, to kind of do it kind of all up, then do it by party, Mm. do it by party affiliation or party ID, and then doing it on this time series and then starting to like break out things like educational attainment, Mm. which is a very popular data cut in political polling because there's sort of, you know, a whole narrative around basically educational attainment as a proxy for class in the U S and that this is affecting people's attitudes about politics and voting and everything else. And so that, that chart also is interesting because it shows a shift of people being fairly equally, but not very satisfied with the way democracy is working in this country in 2021. But in 2023, you see this stratification where people with a postgraduate degree are quite a bit more than college graduates only, who are about the same as some college, but they're way ahead of, or not way ahead, but they're significantly ahead of high school graduate or less. And so everyone was sort of in this 33 to 40 range in 2021, but now high school graduates one in five are saying that they're satisfied. And two in five postgraduates are saying that they're satisfied. Yeah, that's interesting. That says something. It might even say something more than the party ID saying, but I still don't know what it says. <laughs> like, it's one of these things where you look at some of these charts and like, mm, again, yeah, I have more questions I, 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 about what that means.
1: I mean, it's been documented that a lot of Trump support comes from people with a lower, you know, lower education. Uh, and so high school graduate, as I've seen that his support is quite high there. The Republican support is quite high there. So I can imagine the stories focusing around the lost election or the stolen election probably resonate a lot with that group. To drop 15 points, 36 to 21, that's only 15 points of that group. That's enough of a chunk of that group that's probably believes that story. You know, there's plenty of high school graduates that don't, and they're still thinking democracy is not too bad, but... That delta there, I think, is enough to say that's probably what's happened. That stolen election story has really taken root.
0: I have another question for you as a quantitative researcher, which is, it's not very typical that I see a lot of binary questions in surveys. People like their scaled questions, or they like their batteries. Yeah, right. My question here is, I feel like lurking underneath the reporting of this particular Gallup study from this was... Uh, let's see. This when was this published? This was published in January of 2024, so it was conducted yep. at the end of uh, end of December, probably of 2023. So the thing I'm assuming is that this was a very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, very dissatisfied question, and yep. they rolled up some numbers. Yes, that would be my guess. But they're not reporting it that way here,
1: right? Yeah, that's a typical kind of scale that these things use. So I, I mean, I I I have some problems with that scale to be honest, in in, in interpretation. And in the, in the specific problem that I've always run into using this type of scale is the somewhat option. Mm-hmm. So for many, many years, I used to think that you would have this balance of very satisfied, somewhat satisfied, neither satisfied nor dissatisfied, somewhat dissatisfied, and then very dissatisfied. And for a lot of years I used to And then I don't that, know just And then maybe measure. a don't know. Yeah, exactly. And for full like years yeah. I used to think that well that makes sense because you see the scale and you know, if you're somewhat satisfied with something you hit somewhat satisfied and that means that you're satisfied. And we typically roll up somewhat satisfied and very satisfied and say, Oh, this is the amount of people who are actually satisfied with the thing that we're asking about. However, if you actually ask a question like that and then ask a person to comment on why they chose what they chose and you line up their scale response with their comments what you see is that somewhat satisfied does not mean satisfied somewhat satisfied always comes with a caveat people are always saying things like well i'm you know i'm i'm sort of satisfied but here's something i don't like i'm kind of satisfied with this but here's this thing that really i'm not satisfied with to roll up somewhat and vary together Feels like you're rolling up a bunch of people who truly are satisfied with something, with a bunch of people who really there's some aspect of it that they don't like, and mm. that presenting it as one number like 60% are satisfied when 40% of that was somewhat it just doesn't give you the full picture of how people feel about that thing. A lot of what I do in my scales is I tend to top heavy the scales and give people an option to say very satisfied satisfied which is a way better measure of the middle range of satisfied because i can be satisfied with something i can be very satisfied with something which i really like it and love it i can be satisfied and if i'm somewhat satisfied that's really the first drop-off point and then you, you can look at why people are somewhat satisfied and you can roll up the satisfied and very satisfied to give you a true indication of people that actually are good with the thing you're measuring so that's what I kind of do a lot, so a lot of times I'll add a, a point in there to, to make a distinction between somewhat satisfied and satisfied because I think those two things really, you can really draw a very clear distinction between the mindset of people in those two boxes. Yeah.
0: So in this case, without knowing A, whether they use a scale right. or B, how the scale was defined. So one of the things that I used to find when now, you know, most of the surveys I write are screeners to bring people into yep. a qualitative study, right? So they are... Definitely different than the types of surveys you're writing. But one of the things that we used to find for things that were, let's say, more behavioral. And and here I'm thinking about TV research, which I used to do a a fair amount of. Right. And would happily do again, because I love talking to people about about TV. But we used to ask people, so soap operas was one of the things that we'd worked on. And the original version of the question was, you know, a kind of normal question. How many hours per week do you watch soap operas? Mm Mm-hmm. Because I had done some work previously with Sci-Fi Channel and USA Network, I, I knew that that was a weird question for people to answer because there's sort of ways that people overestimate and then underestimate how much TV they watch, depending on the time scale that you ask them on. So how many hours per day do you watch soap operas versus how many hours per week? Yeah. And I've literally seen surveys where you ask people both of those questions and the numbers don't add up because people aren't very good at measuring how many hours per day or yeah. week they do anything, right? Yes, absolutely. So we used a scale for recruiting that was more in the vernacular. So it was, I make a point of watching my favorite shows every day. And then I try to catch episodes as I can throughout the week. Mm-hmm. I only watch it once or twice a week. I almost never watch it. I never watch it. Yeah. Because really what we're looking for is not actually the number of hours per week you watch, but your level of commitment to the shows. Yeah. Because if you're super committed to them, then you'll be able to talk to us about them. right? You you, you have something to say. Yeah. But the other thing that it allowed us to do was get around people's interpretations of those statements, those other kinds of statements, a little bit differently, which is, do you mean watching it live or does DVR count? Right. And one of the examples I always think about is in our committed group, or like I make a point every day, we met a woman in Florida who some days of the week, her kid's daycare schedule or something conflicted with when Guiding Light was on in her market. Right. And the local CBS radio affiliate broadcast Guiding Light on the radio. And so she would listen to it in the car, taking her kids to daycare or whatever yeah. activity they were going to. And I was like, now that's yeah, commitment, right? That's commitment. Yeah, <laughs> I figured yeah. out how to listen to it on the radio. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. I mean, that is still a scale of commitment. It's yeah. just articulated in a more conversational way yeah. um, than the typical kind of, I watch it a lot, I watch it a little, I watch it occasionally or whatever. You know, the, the very somewhat, somewhat, very typical yeah. scale. Yeah. I don't know how, how those get used in... Yeah, I mean,
1: I think there's lots to kind of unpack there because I, I would generally say that sometimes it's useful to ask people how many hours they do something, and sometimes it's useful to ask people just their level of engagement with something. And the reasons for that can kind of differ. I think one thing that, that's true is that whether you ask someone how many hours they spend, or whether you ask them how committed they are to something, in the context of all the other data you collect, both of those ways of asking are going to correlate very highly with each other, Mm -hmm. which means that the people that say they watch a lot of hours are probably going to be the people that also say they're highly committed to the show. So the internal consistency of your data is going to largely be the same in a relative sense. And we see that often. It doesn't always, isn't always perfect, but you know, it can be a 95% correlation between those kind of things. If you ask people number of hours, they watch something and then you try and turn that into you know, the actual number of hours someone is sitting down in front of a TV set watching this thing, and does that correspond to the actual number of hours that the show is on air and broadcast to the population? It never really works out because you always have overclaiming in surveys for this kind of thing. People always tend to think they are doing something more often than they actually are. So you can never match really accurately behavioral data collected outside of a survey with stuff mm-hmm. inside a survey. You can try and sometimes you can do adjustments and you can kind of get close, but you just get a lot of overclaiming. But in, the internal consistency of asking someone how much time they spent and whether or not they're a fan or ha- how engaged of a fan they are, that, yeah, that tends to be pretty highly correlated. Mm -hmm. It it depends what you're using it for. I mean, If you're using time spent doing something because you want to model something and you want some more kind of fidelity and and high usage and low usage, you'll get that from asking hours because you'll get a range and you'll get a lot of Mm -hmm. numbers compared to asking a scale where you might have five points on it. You know, it's a bit harder to model against five points versus all the way to zero to a hundred hours, for instance, something like that.
0: And part of the reason I wanted to talk about that as a, as a part of this, is that the scaled question is used for a lot of different things, right? It can be used for behavior and engagement metrics, it can be yep. used for intensity of opinion. Yes. It, so I think that is one of the challenges of using it. My favorite line from you is still people don't have a linear relationship with their opinions. Oh but yeah. a lot of political polling uses those scaled questions not to estimate how frequently yeah. they vote, though that is a use of that question structure. Mm. We talked about this last time, the how closely are you following news about Trump's legal troubles, for yeah. example. Very somewhat, somewhat vary is the scale, but in qualitative, we would be able to ask about, what do you know about it? Where are you yeah. getting your information about it? Is this something, you, I have a Google alert for it, versus mm. like, I happen to notice that people talk about it on the news. Right. I'm aware that it's happening, but I couldn't tell you anything about it. Yes. These questions of like, how satisfied or dissatisfied are you with something? In a way, I wish that it was just a binary question. Are you satisfied or dissatisfied? And then- Ask some follow-up questions and ask some follow-up about up questions, that. follow-up questions, right,
1: exactly, yeah. That can be a really good way to go. And, and it's not done a lot in quantitative research because it just makes a longer questionnaire. It just makes everything a bit more convoluted in terms of like, gathering the information. Mm-hmm. And also, you can't change direction in a quantitative questionnaire as much as you can in a qualitative interview. So if you ask someone a question that's very binary, like, are you satisfied, dissatisfied? In a qualitative setting, you can start talking to them and you can realize, oh, you know what? They're pretty satisfied. And there's maybe one small thing that got them dissatisfied, but overall they're they're pretty satisfied. We're in the quantitative. As soon as you go in the dissatisfied route, you're like there and you're like, oh, why are you dissatisfied? What's wrong? How dissatisfied are you? And they could be thinking, well, you know what? I probably should have said satisfied because there's only one thing that I'm really slightly dissatisfied about. So trying to guess the motivation behind when they ask a binary for a complex attitude can be dangerous in a quantitative survey because they might just not know what you're trying to get at, and the first level of yes or no, I'm yet satisfied. Or not satisfied could just be the, the the wrong choice given the context that you start to lay out later on. So it's always a very right. difficult thing to do in a quantitative, as opposed to qualitative, which is way better for that.
0: It also calls a question: things like forget about the scale, but the formulation of the question, how much information you pack into the question. Yeah, I remember years ago reading something that was like there is a subtle difference in the way people respond to a question, like. Do you approve or disapprove of Joe Biden versus do you approve or disapprove of the way Joe Biden is doing his job as president?
1: Yeah, Absolutely. Two different things. Because now
0: it's like focused yeah. on how he's doing his job, not the guy. Mm-hmm. And now we introduce the concept of the office of the president into the question. Yes. And that also affects people's Definitely.
1: way of responding. Yeah. Completely. Completely changes it. Yeah. What you write in a question can have a huge impact on the answer. And it can be very subtle. I'm seeing answers completely change based on how much context you give and what you're asking. You do have to be very careful about that. Honestly, you can write questions to support hypotheses you have. And I think that that, or don't have, I think that happens a lot as well when you have someone who isn't worried about not introducing bias into something. They can easily write a question that is going to give them a result that they want to see. And uh, I've definitely been guilty of that in the past. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, so, yeah me i mean I, I know it, but yeah. yeah i think sometimes you have things that get said for instance in focus groups that you then yeah. go and try to size the prevalence of that belief and so you might take the way someone said it in the focus group or even the way that the moderator asked it even if it wasn't specifically what was written on the guide uh, and that can become a statement later about people's attitudes to things. Right. One of the things that come to mind with that is is one that you had shared with the The Washington Post had reported on Edison Research's entrance polls in Iowa. Mm-hmm. So people may have heard of exit polls; There are also entrance polls, which is we ask you on your way in to go vote. Who are you going to vote for? Um, yeah. yeah. Which is interesting as a method. I don't know which one is better or worse. Maybe we can do a little digging on on that. So these were people who could vote in the mm. Iowa caucus. And do and they were going to. They were, in fact, on their way into the gym or wherever they were going to do a caucus. Right. And I was going to say into the polling booth, but that's not how caucuses work. Do you think that Joe Biden legitimately won the presidency in 2020 is how mm-hmm. the question is asked, at least according to The Washington Post. And 69 percent of Trump voters said no. Right. of DeSantis voters said no, five percent of Haley voters said no, and nine percent of Ramaswamy voters said no. The total was sixty-six percent overall said no. Yeah. So there are interesting things about that question. How deeply felt is that ceiling? Mm -hmm. What does legitimately one mean? Would it have mattered if they'd said President Joe Biden in the question? question, (laughs) Um that that one popped into my head because you know, I know from listening to the focus group podcast with Sarah Longwell that you will have people say that they think something hinky happened in 2020, mm-hmm. but they also think that Joe Biden is the president now. And then you have other people who are like, no, he's not the president. It's this crazy conspiracy. And actually yeah. Barack Obama is the president or whatever. Uh, so I think right. that's a whole other universe. Yeah. It's an interesting question. You reacted to. The headline, I think, which was majority of Iowa GOP caucus goers don't believe Biden legitimately won in 2020. And this is like what public policy polling did in 2016 that got a lot of media attention was asking people about did they believe that Ted Cruz's father murdered JFK or whatever. And right. people would say yes to that question in sort of shockingly high <laughs> numbers in, the, in right. the GOP. But my reaction to that was like, I don't know whether they really believe that or not, but they're saying they've heard that. They're telling you that you yeah. have heard that story someplace.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I think a lot of that goes on. It, it's a valid question to ask how, how strongly held are these beliefs when you ask a question like that. Like how easy could that belief be broken down under follow-up questioning in a qualitative mm-hmm. environment? Like I, some, I think sometimes the Republican Party has almost got to the point where it's a test of loyalty to agree with a statement rather than you really, really believe that. It's a narrative you want to keep going. You want that narrative to <laughs> keep going for your purposes so your party can going to win. Like some of that might even be going on. It's really hard to interpret what that means because I think there's lots of different interesting sub segments of I didn't, I don't believe that Biden is president or Biden won that are really hard to pull apart with one blanket statement like that. Going back to the question yeah. of whether an entrance poll and exit poll is interesting because like one of the things you're always looking out for when you do this kind of research is bias can very easily creep into the, the sequence of questions that you have. And as you know, people are always looking to justify a belief. So if they say something to you and they they think they believe that thing, then they're going to try and justify that with, in follow-up questions and follow-up conversations they have. So if they go into a polling booth and they vote for someone and they come out of that polling booth, Is a higher likelihood they're going to justify their vote in any subsequent questions. As opposed to when you go into a polling booth and you haven't voted yet, they might be a little bit more open-minded, the ones that maybe don't know who they're going to vote for. But they haven't made that that commitment to something in terms of ticking a box. So you're you're probably biasing a little bit once you get them out of the booth because they've just put their allegiance down on paper.
0: I think one of the other things there is also the distinction between partisan and nonpartisan pollsters, and then also the difference between public polling and internal polls, where some of these questions are not exactly about how many people really agree with something or really believe something, but how receptive to a message are they? And so we'll put these kinds of ideas in front of them and see if it resonates. And if people say, yeah, I do generally feel that way. Then they might be receptive to messaging that incorporates that idea into Mm. the messaging. And so we can create this flywheel of response. Like I said, I think some of the time when you're asking people in any context about something that is verifiably true or untrue, what their beliefs are about the thing, some of it is like, did it get through to you? Did you hear that? Is it reinforced for you in whatever media you're consuming or whatever conversations you're having, whatever you're seeing on social media, that that is true or untrue. But, you know, I go back to my Zoom example of like, I have already decided that Apple iPod is the best. And so if you're telling me that there are features on the Zoom, well, it must be on the iPod because I've already decided that the iPod is the superior device. This measure of, you know, whether or not Joe Biden legitimately won the 2020 election is as much a measure of like the prevalence of the messaging that says he didn't as it is a measure of people's beliefs about that, which are you know kind of hard to pull but, apart and maybe I don't have matter. Hard to pull
1: apart, yeah. But I agree. Yeah, it is. It's the extent to which that message is constantly in someone's field of view and constantly being talked about. Yeah, I completely mm-hmm. agree. Again, going back to something I think we, we talked about really early on, is it, a lot of people just don't care. <laughs> so a lot of people, they're not, they're not running out to start podcasts about polling. You know, they're literally... <laughs> Just don't care, Farrah. And and so you ask them these questions, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I heard that. It must be, yeah, whatever. I'll just say that that's what I heard. And, and that's the bar. Yeah. And it, it's, it's just, if it was something else, it could be something else. I, 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 yeah, that's the the power of the media around around this stuff sure. is that the media, I think, does have a huge influence on the narrative. And it's funny that the media has a huge influence, narrative, then pollsters poll the narrative, and it happens to be the one the media is talking about. Yes, <laughs> so, and the media uses the polls to reinforce that the narrative is the one that people think, but really it's just the narrative that they're talking about. And so it's this whole kind of circle jerk of, <laughs> that can, that you can kind of get into, you know.
0: This is, I think, different. Like, there's two categories of this. One is the kind of I'll call it motivated question design that is secretly message testing or Mm -hmm. trying to measure the breakthrough of certain ideas. I would say, for example, for Democrats, one of the messages that is being carried, frankly, by both Democrats and Republicans is about Biden's fitness physically and mentally and everything else as as someone who is 80 years old. The, The age story is happening on right-leaning media, it's happening on left-leaning media. Both yep. sides are concerned about it. So right. it gets a lot of pickup in polling response as mm-hmm. being a thing I guess we're supposed to are talking about it. So I must be, I guess I'm supposed to be concerned about that. The other one that feels a little bit more, that feels a little bit like expressive responding to me is... The immigration question is something that, like, if you're very concerned about, Ill- you know, illegal immigration, what's mm-hmm. happening at the border and so on, you tend to be a Republican. But I think, you know, getting into any kind of qualitative question with Democratic voters, I would imagine that they are also sort of concerned about immigration because it's in the news all the time. Right. But there is something encoded about that question that maybe is like, if I say I'm worried about it, that I sound racist. Or if I say I'm concerned about it, that I'm giving in to the Republican narrative. Like, right. there's definitely some which team are you on stuff, I think, that yeah. that might be correlated with that question. Right. I think crime probably functions in a similar way, where, yes. you know, I might know intellectually that crime rates are down, but my neighbor's house got broken into the other day. So yeah. should I say something about that when I'm responding to this poll, or will I sound like a Republican if I do? Well, I think it's interesting <laughs> also,
1: is, do you ask someone, where do you ask someone in, in a poll, whether they're what their political lean- leaning is or their political label is that can have a big impact on how they answer subsequent questions because yeah, they're putting their stamp down right? so I'm a Republican so therefore they're going to keep that narrative up regarding Republicans if you don't ask them their political leaning I wonder if they feel more free to not follow the script that they think they should be kind of following I can't remember if we talked about this in the last time but this is something that is very specific. It's probably specific to other countries. I don't know, but in the US, there's definitely this tribalism because of the label of Republican and Democrat. Where I come from right. in New Zealand, you know, we don't have equivalent labels of the main political parties. So you, know, you vote for one or the other when election comes, but you don't spend the rest of your time defining yourself by how you voted. Or the fact that you are part of a party or not, because the the concept just doesn't really exist in the same way.
0: The interesting thing about that is we just do have a different structure. It's not these sort of parliamentary systems where the parties select their slate of candidates and then you vote for the party, essentially. Especially since like the 1970s, we're in these primaries now where voters select the candidates that run for each party. And then we make it even more complicated when we're voting for president by right. then getting yeah, back yeah, together yeah. in November and voting for people who are not running for president not, right. to go vote yeah. for them for president.
1: Yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Yeah, it, it doesn't need to be that complicated. I mean, in New Zealand, you do vote for individuals because there's a we have a mixed list system where you have some individuals mm. you would vote for and then the rest of parliament is filled up from what they call the list, which is apportioned with the proportion of the party vote that kind of gets done. I think it's a mixed member proportional system or something like that. So you have a bit of the combination. I think the thing that this is just different, at least all the years I spent down there and I haven't been in New Zealand politics in a long time, the Liberal Party is Labour and the Conservative Party is National, but there are no Nationals or Labourers. <laughs> you know, like, there's just, you just don't have those terms. You have more left-leaning and right-leaning individuals and you have People who are members of the party are the people typically who say, hey, it's election time, come and knock on some doors for us. But you don't have party membership really in a broad way. And you just don't have these labels. So the political discourse is very different when you don't have the entire context of everything said politically always split into people who are Republicans and people who are Democrats.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, to some degree, this is an innovation uh, of American politics since like the late 1960s, I want to say, which is that there was sort of a move amongst um, electoral political scientists to say that the two dominant parties in American politics were not distinct enough from one another and Mm -hmm. that they should be more unalike. Right. And so there was you know, a sort of move to do that. And I, I can scare up that paper. And if not the paper, then I believe it was an episode of the Ezra Klein show where he was interviewing the political scientist Liliana Mason. And mm-hmm. she was talking about this move to stratify mm-hmm. and make the parties more distinct from one another. Right? Um, there used to be more mixed ticket voting. I vote for a Democrat, for president. And I vote for Republicans in my local city council race. There used to be more of a, a kind of true sense that there wasn't, major distinctions between the two parties now i think that sentiment is more about they do what they want they don't care about me the way that they're the same is that they're all corrupt and i don't trust them but i think some of it is the structure of the way the constitution works and some of it is a long-standing tradition built up by party factions to Mm. to create apparatus for it i mean even the time, place, and manner of elections for primaries is largely dictated by the parties,
1: by the parties who yeah, have right. so,
0: a whole set of rights that yes. are <laughs> distinct from like yes. the states that then have to pay to hold the elections. Yep. It is a very different system, and I it it works out to be a priming question then, doesn't it, to ask people what their party affiliation or party or, or party It does. I, mean, th- I think
1: it would be a really interesting that would be interesting. Qualitative, qualitative group is, is that you can come and talk about politics. You can't tell anyone, like, if you're a Democrat or Republican. You can't. Yeah. you just, you know, like, well, how would people align if they couldn't put people into boxes as to what way they were? And they might guess it, I guess. But it's just, it's just if you take those labels away, I think you would just have a very different kind of discourse. Uh, I have
0: long been interested in what if we recruited, like, what, how would you even go about recruiting? groups of people and maybe you wouldn't do it in groups maybe that's the answer but like getting people to talk to you about politics without telling them mm. you're going to be talking about yeah, politics,
1: politics yeah Interesting. because
0: like one of the things that has happened over the last several years and uh, Ann seltzer was talking about this in an interview recently you can't put trump supporters together with non-trump supporters in focus right. groups anymore right. because it gets confrontational and uncomfortable too, yeah you can't just put Republicans in a group together. You have to figure out whether they're Trump-loving Republicans or some other group of Republicans, because otherwise it becomes what we used to call a conflict group, (laughs) as opposed to an affinity group. Mm -hmm. And so that's interesting. Like We have to make sure it's a safe space for everybody to say what they need to say. And I wonder if there's anything similar like that on the Democratic side. I don't know. I should ask some Democratic pollsters about that. But on that topic of how do you decide even who to include <laughs> in, in a study like that. We did get a great question from my friend Jeff Ambeider on threads about oversampling. All right. What is it? Why does one do it? And why do commentators seem to think that it uh, skews the sample or otherwise corrupts the data?
1: Oversampling is actually a way to reduce potential bias. Say you wanted an equal number of people over the age of 45 and under the age of 45. But you know that people who are older tend to respond more readily to polls. So what they call the response rate is higher. But people who are younger than 45 tend to not respond as well. And so if you just send out a poll to an equal number of over 45 and under 45 people, you you would expect to get back more over 45 people than under 45 people because the response rate for over 45 people is higher. And so then if you did that, your data would be biased towards the views of people who are over 45. To combat that, a lot of the time, what you'll do is oversample. So you know that the response rate for under 45s is lower. So you might oversample them, say, you know, by a, by 50% to bring the response rate up to the response rate of over 45s. And then when you get the data back after, after oversampling, the final data set you have has equal representation of both groups. So mm. that's typically how oversampling is used. It's used as a way to combat the response bias that you get from different demographics that you try and sample. It could definitely bias it if you weren't keeping track of the incidence rates. There's potential other biases that can creep in mm. because you're coarse graining a little bit in terms of like, you know, over 45 or under 45 or males, females when you do oversampling. And your oversample might bring in people who have a, you know, a slightly different political view, and you're you're increasing that component of the sample unwittingly. You know, that could mm-hmm. ha- potentially happen, but you, usually it's designed to combat bias. So it's not something that that you would inherently do for no reason. It's usually a combat bias. Yeah. And yeah, I, I it would be strange for it to oversample for no reason, like just because you wanted. Right some group in a higher way that would bias it right that would totally bias it if you aren't managing the balancing of the sample in a in a smart way
0: so one of the scenarios where we've done oversampling and a couple of things we've worked on has been Mm -hmm. so that we would have a readable sample size of a subgroup okay that's different
1: um, like that's simply quartering we would use the term quartering More than oversampling to describe that I want to, I have a quota of 15 to 29 year olds I need to hit to make sure I have a readable base for those 15 to 29 year olds. You would use that base to read the 15 to 29 year old group, but you wouldn't then combine that. Say with the rest of the age groups, and no, and come you'd use up, your weights. Yeah, you'd yeah. have a weighting system or some other way. You'd have a random sample and then a quota sample. Like quotering is something that you typically do to get to a a readable base for something that, that's not typically called oversampling in quantitative research. Mm-hmm. Some people might say that, yeah. so I can see how there might be some confusion there.
0: Yeah, I mean, when we've asked for it, we have said we want to quota these groups, but I know that I have had clients then describe the approach as. Oversampling oversampling, a particular
1: group. Yeah, right.
0: Um, So, this could just be like a thing where people who are not quantitative researchers are misconstruing a quota for an oversample. Right. But I think the other thing that's interesting there, because you you did remind me, Faris Yakub sent me a note saying that he was curious about response rates because of the kind of shift away from people having landlines. Um, yeah. The shift away from being able to rely solely on computer assisted telephone interviews, random digit dialing, that kind of thing in order to find people. And so Pew Research has uh, written about the mixed method approach and mm. you're seeing it in a lot of the, the public polling as well, where it's a yeah. mix of phone interviews from the voter file plus usually like they send dates. Text on a mobile device to yeah. a voter, and yeah. then the voter takes the survey online instead of doing it by phone because people don't like talking on the phone anymore.
1: I think it's all viable ways to do. It. I think the response rates have been dropping just you know decade after decade after in decade in research because of over-researching the population and there's not one place to get people anymore. So there are a lot of complex things I think pulses do. I think I read, did read something that the Pew group was doing with regards to mixed sampling methods and phone and online, etc. And I I think they do a really great job of trying to figure out where non-response bias can creep in and how to account for it. And some of the techniques that are used are really sophisticated. You have to be really careful when doing political polling about response bias. It's the the biggest thing that under-responsiveness, response bias, all kind of under an umbrella of getting that response back to your survey in a way that is reflective of a true random sample you know, because that's what we're all trying to achieve. If everyone was just in a big swimming pool and we just had a grappling hook that pulled people out randomly, that's essentially what we're trying to do, right, in a sample. A lot of the statistics that you do uh, in terms of its applicability to measuring what's happening in a population only work when the sample is truly random. And if you don't get that part right, it can be pretty disastrous.
0: This is the underlying question then about this, which is that if we're going from traditional sampling methods that are, Random sampling of representative populations. So these are registered voters or they're adults over 18 or how, however yeah. you want to define the the subset in the context of political polling. So eligible voters, registered voters, likely voters are kind of the typical tiers. They are not yeah. the same people. And then there's a step before eligible voters, which is just like all 18-year-old U.S. citizens. Not all 18-year-old or older U.S. citizens are, in fact, eligible to vote because they are incarcerated um, yeah. or have been incarcerated. So there's a you know a variety of those kinds of things going on. The question, I think, has, do we get better quality results from the phone-based surveys or the online surveys? And that also is an interesting kind of component of it. Like you can get to representativeness. You can even get to randomness i mean pew has their own kind of probability panel and and that kind of thing that they've been building yeah which is why i think their their work is high quality they've invested in the infrastructure yeah. to do high quality they have, work they have, they're great. Um, yeah if you want to figure out you know, like
1: how it's done you could go to pew and look at some of their method stuff it's really great yeah
0: exactly but that question of do we get better responses on the phone versus on the internet is also a question that i know that like Nate Silver and Nate Cohn and whatever I've had opinions about over the last couple of election cycles as we move more to online methods.
1: Yeah, that is a tough one. I used to do a lot of phone interviewing, then transition to online, and you did get radically different results in strange kind of ways. Some better, some worse. I'm not sure what the net direction of positivity is, if it's better online. A lot of stuff I did for like online research was brand research. You had a lot of problems with the phone, of people remembering, like, what brands they had in their house and stuff, because you couldn't problem with images or, or lists, et cetera. Yeah. So you had a very different levels of recall to a phone interviewer without the advantage of having a list in front of people. So your numbers yeah. would be a lot higher online, but sometimes the numbers online being higher were more reflective of what was going on because it's far easier for someone to recognize something than it is for them to recall it. And that's one of the key differences between online and phone is that on the phone, you're really asking someone to recall something a lot of the time. Online, there's more chances to ask people to recognize things. That can make a, a big a big difference. All our political polling was done on phones back in New Zealand, and we never transitioned to online. And before he has these days, but back then, there, there, we never transitioned political polling from phone to online. So we didn't have really a, a, a point of comparison, but. It's a good conversation because they are very different. You're going to get very different results whether you do it online versus phone for different types of questions.
0: And you bring up a good point is the recognition versus recall component of this. I was looking at the Washington Post-Monmouth poll for New Hampshire prior to the primary that just passed. And there was a question in there about whether any of the campaigns had contacted you personally. And something Mm. like 79% of New Hampshire voters said that they had been contacted by no campaigns. So that either says to me, somehow campaigning was not taking place in New Hampshire prior to this primary, which is possible. Things are weird out there. But the other possibility is they don't remember it. Yeah. And so if you put a sample put a, ad a sample in front ad, of them, a
1: flyer out, yeah, exactly. A yeah.
0: door knocker yeah. or whatever, yeah. like yeah. maybe they would go, oh yeah, I remember getting those I threw them all out. Right. But I remember, I remember yeah. that now.
1: I remember we used to do a lot of work for the company SC Johnson down in New Zealand. And they had a, a, a tracker yeah. that we did where we were doing door-to-door interviewing at that point, this is many years ago, but he was always concerned that when people said, oh, what SC Johnson products do you have? What cleaning products do you have under your sink? (laughs) (laughs) You know, that people weren't really... Saying the right ones, <laughs> yeah. and when we looked at right. it and looked at the data, we said, "Yeah, you might be right there." It's this, this, you know, what we're getting back is a lot of like strange stuff that doesn't reflect what was sold in the market and that kind of stuff. Right. So we did this thing where we had our interviewers ask people after they asked the question, "What cleaning products do you have in your sink?" They say, "Oh, can we come in and just check whether what you told us is correct?" And so right. they literally went inside and they opened up the sink, and we had them mark down the products they had, and sure enough, there was a 65% discrepancy between what people recall they had and what was actually there. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just went through this
0: exercise in my own home where I was like, God, why do I have so much of this hand soap?
1: (laughs) Right, exactly. And this way, surveys don't reflect the truth of what we have or do or will do a lot of the time they reflect the way we think about what we have or will do or do, which I think is, is is important to understand. A lot of surveys don't necessarily freak reality. They reflect our interpretation of our own reality as we respond to to questions. And that can be very different to the actual reality we live. You can't get past that in surveys unless you literally start you know, going through people's trash. But the answers can be interesting because how we interpret our reality, I think, is how we also interface with the world. If we think we don't have these products under our sink, then we're going to buy them and end up with too much soap like you do, right? So
0: it's... (laughs)
1: On that f- note, I have f- to actually shoot. Farrah, All right. Well,
0: thank you for another delightful conversation about mm. things that Cross-tab apparently only, related.
1: We <laughs> right, only we And 15 <laughs> people. And 15 are of our friends. Other people care about it. That's impressive. Exactly. I really think yeah. that's impressive. Yeah.
0: Well, we'll see. We'll okay. see how that how that grows. Maybe it will. Maybe, Maybe. it won't. Maybe yeah. it's just for us. All right. Thanks, Paul. Sounds good. Crosstabs is hosted by me, Farah Bostic, with Paul Soldera. Production by The Difference Engine and edited by me music from audio jungle by s audio find us at crosstabspodcast.com where you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter and find out immediately when new episodes drop tell your friends about the show subscribe on your favorite podcast service drop us a note if you have any questions about pole design or sampling or waiting or anything else and we'll see you next time